enjoy the presentation about preserving arcade games. Basically, a talk about the future of the past, I would say. Um, so, enjoy and please give a warm welcome to Arge Albertini. Hey, does it work? Can you hear me? Yeah, it's okay. So, thanks for uh, coming, uh, all of you, and hi to the streamers. And uh, welcome to my talk, so Preserving Arcade Games. So, I present this because gaming is cool, retro gaming is trendy, and more importantly, arcade games are fun, so I made a really funny picture. <laughs> but, but this is not very stylish. That's a better way to speak about arcade games, more than bullet points and uh, memes. So, not everybody understands hardware, not everybody understands software, but everybody understands that it's a game, and it's a good one. That, that's the cool part. That's the cool part with emulation. You do some hacking, but it brings games to everybody. Okay, uh, today I'll, I'll speak about arcade games, uh, those games where you had to put a, uh, a coin to play with in a bar or in an arcade room. This money would go only to the operator, not to the actual manufacturer. So to be successful, those games had to be awesome, different in a way, in a way or another. And the key for that it was that this was the whole game the screen, the controls, the cabinets, the electronics, the software, everything was usually controlled by the original designer. And it was really dedicated. So here you have the controls, four directions, no buttons, no diagonals, unlike a console that is more or less ready with a controller to do everything, all kinds of games. Arcade games were dedicated. Let's look a bit in history. This is Night Driver from 76. It's based on the first racing game, which is a German game, Nürburgring. And it was made of 28 PCBs. The first racing game was made of 28 PCBs in 1975. Uh, as far as I know, it was not preserved. Berserk was one of the first games with digitized speech. It has 16 words of vocabulary. At the time, it cost $1,000 per word to be digitized. So just to be awesome and sound was really important arcade room, so it was attracting people who didn't even see the game, but like, oh, what's that sound coming for? And very nice for you. They made a German version, and the story doesn't say if German words are more expensive to be digitized because they tend to be longer. <laughs> Battlezone was the first FPS in 1980, and it was originally designed to be a military trainer, so it was not even thought to be a game. Dragon Slayer uh, was at the time where games you were like four colors and hard disk were 10 megabytes was using the very recent technology laser disk based it was one year old so it was really groundbreaking in the hardware it was using outrun had a special dedicated chipset for the sprites and was using a secondary cpu only to draw the roads the cpu was 10 megahertz the both CPUs are 10 megahertz while an Amiga only has one CPU of 7 megahertz. So imagine they like, oh, let's put an extra chip for the sprites, a chipset for the sprites, and an extra CPU for the roads just to make a groundbreaking game. Hard driving is way before GPU even existed. And hard driving was crazy hardware. Basically, the original hard driving was three PCBs, the sequel was four PCBs, and then they made this extreme version made of triple screen, which was emulated last month. And it's six PCBs, four P CPUs, nine DSPs. And they even made it possible to add up to, up to 25 monitors in 1991. <laughs> so that gives you the, an idea of how crazy the hardware of arcade games could be. And when the electronic was not crazy, then the cabinets had something unusual, like all kinds of sport. And this is a Korean game of us poking. And here you have a 
Yeah, and this is the controller, and a hand with a finger extended. Yeah, you well, well whatever. <laughs> Afterburner was really awesome. The sequel was not so bad. Afterburner had the moving seats. The sequel, well, they made it something even crazier, G-Lock. And this is the R360, where it could rotate the player even upside down or all degrees. Or the, sometimes it was not the seat, but the screen that was awesome. So here you have some half, almost half spherical screen where you cannot see everything at once. Or here, double wide screen for four players. So that's like two players, uh, two uh, wide screen LCDs put together. And they even did that at the time of CRT screens with using mirrors so that you had a triple screen just with the mirror so that there is no li uh, limits between the screens. Just to have an extra view for multiplayer action. Of course, even though the hardware was like really crazy sometimes, then came uh, uh, crazy piracy. And as soon as the electronic was not too crazy, then uh, basically a game would, have, would end up with bootlegs. Like bootlegs appeared, the first bootleg in MAME is like in 77. And basically, any game not too crazy on not a crazy hardware would end up with a bootleg. So here are some games that ended up having a, a bit more than usual creative bootlegs. So, for example, Metal Slug 3, the bootleg is a metal called Metal Slug 6. Or Space Invader, the bootleg is called Darth Vader. Why not? And, yeah, uh, King of Fighter 2001 becomes uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon 2003 Super Plus. <laughs> so, usually bootlegs were just defeating the protection, duplicating the hardware, but sometimes they were a bit more creative. Sometimes they would even get a step further. You probably didn't hear about this game, Dragon Ball. It looks nice, but it's actually just a graphic and sound hack of Ninja Gaiden. <laughs> or here, this is Snow Bros. 3 at the time of the World Cup, but it's actually just a hack of Snow Bros. 1. And here, a bubble bubble with uh, girls. So, yeah, I don't understand. <laughs> okay, so because the, the designers had controls over everything, then with crazy piracy came crazy protections. This one is still not completely defeated now in 2014. Uh, this one is interesting. It's, a, so it's, a, it's an older chip, a bit like the Nintendo the NES chip, protection chip, and it was implementing a, CP, a virtual CPU in hardware in 1982. So when you have someone complaining, a virtual machine, yeah, this is a virtual machine in hardware in 92 for the protection. And typically, this, the most advanced protections were when the protection was deeply integrated into the game mechanics. So basically, for example, Dodonpachi has a dedicated CPU for the protection, and if it's absent, the game is running, but the, the, um, the uh, enemies don't shoot. <laughs> if in Super Hang-On, if the protection, protected CPU is absent, then the game works, but the roads are straight. <laughs> and typical of Konami, the collision is handled by the protection, so here the game is working, and without the protection, you cannot be hit, and you cannot, be, you cannot hit the enemies, and they cannot hit you. <laughs> and they went one step further, to create, and they added what's called suicide batteries. So basically, the protection data was on a battery-powered RAM. The moment the battery dies, the protection is out, and the game is unplayable for good. And they even made it so paranoid that sometimes if the chip detects something is going wrong, it kills its own memory on purpose. <laughs> so that's where you see that preservation is important, because this, even if you bought the hardware, you are not allowed to open it without voiding the guarantee. Now, support, technical support is gone for those games for a long time, and those games will end up being lost, even if it was their best version ever. So that's a problem, because here you have a battery that leaked and killed the PCB, and you're not supposed to open and touch the hardware, but on the other hand, all the copies of the game are going to die, even if you bought them uh, expensive price, usually. And, now, if you actually hack the protection and pre get the game preserved, then you have those new generation ports that are based on emulation and the, on the hacking that was made to, to remove the protection, to kill the protection. So, just as a summary for this first part, arcade games were awesome, but and usually running on dedicated hardware. They were heavily pirated. They were heavily protected as a consequence, and they were so protected that it made them vulnerable uh, not in terms of exploitation, but like vulnerable to time because the game die on purpose for the sake of their protection. 
So now let's look at the hardware in particular, the CPS-1 Capcom Play system, known for mostly for this. The original Street Fighter 2 in 1991, so the Street Fighter 2, the Champion Edition with the same characters and the boss playable, Hyper Turbo, whatever, and some shooters, 1941. This one is interesting because it's a B2A and you're a Japanese mercenary. The sequel, it's a, la it's a tank with three legs, yeah, whatever. With, CP <laughs> with CPS-1, you can run in pants in the forest, you can jump on walls, you can punch T-Rex, Fight lying dragons with open heart, yeah. Standing dragons, flying dragons, flying kingpins, <laughs> attack Russia. This is supposed to be the Duma or something. Attack China, and some more peaceful games. CPS 1 was really good. A particular notice for this one, you probably don't know about this, it was just emulated and preserved six months ago, so you probably don't know about it. It looks like Street Fighter 2, but it's not really Street Fighter 2. It's based on Street Fighter 2, it's Kensei Mogura, it's actually a more hitting game based on Street Fighter 2. <laughs> it's extremely rare, and it was preserved and emulated for good six months ago. So, CPS 1 was protected, but it was completely hacked, so Street Fighter 2 hacks were very widespread. Or this is a Final Fight hack, so you have, in the original version, you have three players. In the bootleg, they even let you control more characters, which is nice. Even more options than the original version. This is a CPS-1 uh, game, so with the three PCBs. And this is a bootleg, so completely different hardware, so even the manufacturer wouldn't get any money from the hardware itself. It's not just about defeating the protection, it's just a, it's about making physical copy of an arcade game. And even the last version of the CPS-1 had suicide battery and a custom chip with integrated encryption, so like everything that should be right, but data was encrypted with code and the algorithm was weak, so basically uh, it was possible to determine the, the encryption and all those games had their bootlegs, even though it had a suicide battery and everything that sounded perfectly at the most advanced protection at the time. So CPS-1, it was great. It was protected like suicide battery and everything, but it was completely hacked. The answer for, for, from Capcom for that was the CPS-2. Here, with the, it gives you an idea of the size. Uh, it's not related, just to give you an idea of the size. And the uh, CPS-2, well, started in 93 with this. So, from the original Super Street Fighter 2 to the Hyper Street Fighter 2, 10 years later, not very original, but that's Capcom, so the Super Street Fighter, the Super Turbo, the hyper version with the different modes of characters, the alpha series, and two and three, with the two versus one player mode, which was really good. The parody, which I really like, Pocket Fighter, it's quite crazy. <laughs> and then the crossovers with Marvel and X-Men, X-Men versus Street Fighter, Marvel superheroes. Yeah, this this is a special character based on a Japanese comedian. <laughs> the very good Marvel vs. Capcom. And then the Darkstalker series. One, two, three. Crazy stuff. Really great, really great games. <laughs> Some action games. The very good Alien vs. Predator. Dungeons and Dragons. And some shooters, because we love shooters. 1944. Kimahu. Wing. Matrix. And the best, maybe for the last, Progear. <laughs> and that's stage two. 
And, and, and that's stage two of the first pass, it's harder the second pass. <laughs> and some more peaceful games. Pong, Puzzle Loop, Puzzle Fighter, played by Jean-Philippe Aumasson here. <laughs> so CPS2 was really, really good. CPS2 was clearly the good successor of CPS1, so you have the timeline of CPS1, CPS2, and CPS3 was too complex, too, too protected, like it would kill itself on purpose. Uh, so CPS2 was probably the, like, the last successful hardware made by Capcom. CPS2 was really good, very good games. And this is all the CPS2 hacks that existed, bootlegs, region swap, whatever, nothing, absolutely nothing. They were so desperate that they couldn't hack the CPS2 version of the, the game that they just uh, they, they took the Mega Drive version and they turned it into an arcade version. And they even made a typo for the insert coin message. <laughs> so let's look a bit at the hardware. So CPS2 is made of a sandwich of two PCBs, and one PCB has the, the game and the protection together. So basically, this is the game PCB, and everything that is in green is unencrypted, so no problem. The, the graphics and sound were a bit like the CPS1, no problem. And code and data are together. Data is not encrypted, code is encrypted, and the decryption is done on the fly on, by inside the CPU, and the, the, the decryption key is stored on the SRAM battery that is battery-powered. So usually when you say that, people understand it wrong and they think, okay, let's just trick the CPU into thinking that code is uh, data and let's just get code decrypted. But this is done at CPU level, at the moment to fetch memory. And the pin to control that behavior was not accessible from the outside of the package of CPU plus decryption. So there is a reason it was undefeated. Decryption was done on the fly for execution. And when you read memory, it comes in clear. So basically, you patch some opcodes blindly, you get a black screen of it crashed, you have no idea what happened, and back to zero. Even better, even, so all the opcodes are encrypted, and even the initial stack pointer and PC are encrypted. So you don't know where execution starts, the of, uh, actual CPU was even unknown at the time. So basically, CPS2 was awesome, it was really well protected, and it was absolutely unscathed for like six years. And even if it was CPS1 was completely hacked, everybody wanted CPS2 emulated and absolutely nothing for six years. So luckily, Capcom is going to do a mistake because of this thing. Neo Geo is known for the Fatal Fury series, or for many games, but including The Art of Fighting, Samurai Showdown, King of Fighter, Middle Slug. Neo Geo was awesome, a lot of good games. Neo Geo was open to third parties. So for example, Metal Slug was not done by SNK originally. But still, so there were some games that were quite crap, but still it was a lot of games. A, a very long success, like many years. And even more importantly, a success in arcade, but also as an expensive console. And also the hardware is a bit similar to CPS2, the games were a bit similar to CPS2. So, Capcom tried the same thing, and they managed, they released something that it managed to make the Neo Geo looks cheap and small. The CPS Changer was a console version, but it was much too expensive, and the games were really old, because the CPS Changer games were actually the CPS1 games that were already very old, while the Neo Geo was getting games that were released in arcades a few weeks before. So CPS Changer was um, a commercial failure. And as a last try, uh, they just backported one of the CPS2 games on the CPS changer. So they took one CPS2 game that is encrypted, and they, they put it on the CPS changer system, so they had to downgrade the audio system, but it's more or less the same system. But this one is encrypted, this one is not. So you see it coming, right? What happened that day? Nothing. For some reason, I mean, the protection is not that easy, but for some reason, even after that was out, nothing happened. The dragon was still undefeated, and to defeat dragon, you need a team of heroes. So uh, basically, the, so here start the stories. Um, this, uh, so um, one um, guy called Razula started uh, uh, analyzing the, the dumps of this game. So it was an encrypted uh, 68,000 code, and just made assumption 
uh, just exploring the, the, the disassembly itself. And then, luckily, he could buy the Japanese version, the exact version of this game, in a working state, so with the battery, uh, the system working, and the protection alive. Uh, Raz, Razula was uh, needed help on the PC side, so I worked with him. Razula was on the front end, I was on the back end helping him with software that we were, when we needed to communicate together. So the first breakthrough of Razula was to uh, enable the debugger that was integrated in that game. So until now, like for six years, there was absolutely no hack of CPS2. And then eventually he enabled the integrated debugger, which was an awesome advantage because suddenly we were not blind anymore. We had no idea about the decryption. We had no idea about the keys, whatever. But at least suddenly we could see the registers modifying blindly and get some progress. Then, so that was, we started this, it was in uh, November 99. So yeah, like 15 years ago, well, I'm old. Um, <laughs> uh, the second breakthrough was to accidentally find that some me higher memory range were not using encryption for unknown reasons. So that's a big face ball from Capcom. Because they had a working... because they had a working decryption that was undefeated for many years, and yet for some unknown reason it was not used by any game. They just disabled this encryption for, uh, on some memory ranges. So then, uh, that was in, um, in spring 2000, I think, then we were enabled to have shellcode execution on a CPS2. Uh, only a split second of execution because something was killing the execution. We didn't know what yet, and we were theoretically unable to get code decrypted. Luckily, another mistake of, CPA, of Capcom is that one of the addressing mode of the 68000 is relative to the PC, so basically, in modern terms, relative to AIP. And at bus level, that means you read code, or you read data, but relative to PC, which means you just read it as code. So you read data and it's decrypted on the fly. Big mistake by Capcom. It's not even clear in the specs, but at a low level, this is what happens. And this is a big mistake by Capcom because Sega knew about it and in their own protected software uh, hardware, they prevented that to happen. So suddenly we had the ability to decrypt one word at a time of CPS2. So I flew and visited Raz for the first time and Raz was turning on the switch of the CPS2, displaying one word on the screen. I was writing down in Excel table, flipping off the switch, going to the next, and then writing down, and so on. And we believed, we thought, because that was the first known description of CPS2, we thought, okay, we are going to defeat that in no, no time. Well, we were wrong, but at least we were trying. Uh, this is a shorter version of my talk. So, of course, in the meantime, over those years, we did extra research and sub-projects related, you know, like sub-quests in RPG to keep the faith, to keep your mind fresh, etc. But sometimes we didn't know if we were building in the wrong, right direction by looking these opcodes on the, on the screen. But still, it was making things progress. But at least, we had some data decryption, some code decryption, but we couldn't exploit it yet. The second, the next mistake of Capcom was that in the decrypted version of Street Fighter Zero, they actually let this weird, the weird opcode, uh, they, they left it. And this weird opcode is actually what keeps the execution running. It's the watchdog key. And if it's executed regularly, then the decryption stays alive. So suddenly we went from unlimited uh, uh, really short execution time to unlimited decryption time. That was in December 2000. So then we could automate decryption and start dumping. How do you dump when you like suck at hardware? Uh, this is what this is for. I'll give you, this is a hint. So we just so that there were unused ports on the CPS2 that are the same voltage as a joystick port on the PC. So the CPS2 was sending data to the joystick port. So that was RAS program sending data to the joystick port. My program was uh, getting bits, three bits at a time, including checksum and parity, uh, not more than 30 uh, times a second because joystick port is unreliable at this speed. 
Then my program will check the checksum and upload, update the version of the, the, the counter inside the ROM image that was monitored by his EEPROM emulator that was updating the counter on the fly in the CPS2, and then we would send the next byte this way. That's a bit crazy, but it worked. <laughs> so we ended up having the first decrypted dump of CPS2 at the end of 2000. For the first time, CPS2 decrypted and emulated. So that was the first screens. That made the news. The, made, the news got it wrong as usual. The encryption was not smashed. We just asked nicely for the CPS2 to decrypt itself and send the information to joystick port. <laughs> but still, that was really good because at least emulation, CPS2 preservation and emulation became a reality. So now people could send us their PCBs, their games in working state, and we can, could end up uh, dumping them and getting them preserved. Of course, not really game over for CPS2 because we needed the game in working state. The encryption was still absolutely unknown, but still a very good progress. Uh, in the meantime, now people were sending us the games and so on. New, the recent Neo Geo games also had protections like Garo. And uh, we, with the same jumps, joystick dumping uh, abilities, we got a decrypted dump quickly, but this time the algorithm was weak. and we could the game, get the game uh, decrypted and the protection defeated for these Neo Geo games. Another important thing, thing is that uh, now we got uh, decryption not defeated, but we could decrypt the game, preserve the game, but that wouldn't resurrect the hardware. People who didn't care about emulation but had dead hardware at home didn't know what to do with it. And especially, uh, there were plenty of rumors about how a CPS2 really dies. So someone actually sent a CPS2 in a working state to Raz to be sacrificed, to be killed the correct way, so that he could experiment on the way it would really die and what could be possible with a correctly dead CPS2. I mean, just with the protection removed by the battery being uh, uh, cut. And the problem was that if you just decrypt the code and put it back on the uh, to back on the hardware, it doesn't work. Capcom didn't want people to reuse the, hard, the dead hardware without the, their permission and without them collecting extra money. Because that's, what's, that's what happened with the protected CPS-1. Then Razula did this, here the battery is missing and the game is still is booting. The trick was that actually the internal registers for video and audio were changed, so basically the game was not displaying and not anything and not doing any sound. But the game was actually running when it was correctly dead. So the, thing, the good thing was that, so, to, so in order to resurrect a CPS2, you had to determine exactly what is code and data, decrypt code in place, put it back on the ROM, and then modify all the, oper all the, um, this, the values of these registers and make sure these ranges of memory are not cleared. So then that would make a CPS2 that never dies because it doesn't need a battery anymore. He also made a universal ROM that people could just burn on a EEPROM and uh, test if their hardware was, had a chance of resurrecting or if it was dead for another reason, which was really cool. And also he made uh, versions of CPS2 games that would never die following this process. So then people could just cut their battery and uh, have a game that will never die and, don't, and never take care of the battery leaking and everything. Capcom, uh, CPS2 was preserved in a hardware state. That enabled bootlegs, so here instead of Rockman, uh, Mega Man you have Giga Man, that's not very nice. And here the, the ROMs have been replaced by other components. Some bootlegs are a bit better. This one is uh, with extra uh, ROM, uh, board to hook the controls. Uh, it's all-in-one, so basically you have one game, a secret menu, and you have basically all the games running on the actual hardware. Actually, uh, Dark, Darksoft, which I will introduce later, is actually making a new CPS2 all-in-one. So if you're interested, you have one CPS2 and you want to play all the original CPS2 games with one version of the hardware, he's doing that again. That's really cool. That's a very nice, constructive way of making a bootleg and to preserve with just to preserve all the games in their original state with just one copy, physical copy of the hardware. We also had this little problem. This is Alien versus Predator. Capcom had lost the license, the IP rights for this game shortly after the release of this game, so it was never ported to any hardware. And then this game happened. 
they don't seem to have anything in common except the name. And just for that reason, because IP don't care about what the actual game is, but just about the name, we had a nice uh, takedown letter from a lawyer because we were making this game playable. I mean, we didn't provide the game, but just we made it possible to be playable. And one lawyer had too much time and just sent us a letter for this one. Uh, no big deal. The, the, the hosting was cut instantly and so on. But no, so not a problem, no trial and everything, but it's in this moment that you know who are your real friends and not, you know. So, yeah, just uh, it's a, an interaction with lawyers is, yeah, always to remind you it's real stuff, you know, it's real, uh, real life stuff. But we couldn't get everything decrypted. It would take us 2,000 years, 200 years to get all the values of CPS2 decrypted. And if you cannot defeat your enemy, then you call your friends to give them a good beating. And that's where Charles McDonald comes in. Uh, Charles McDonald is, I call him the Captain America of emulation because he analyzes hardware, he documents hardware, he creates his own device to defeat the protections, and sometimes he even makes the emulator. Respect. And this is um, a PAL about black boxer. So basically, you extract tables of truth of a PAL that you are not supposed to read anymore. So instead, you, write, you try all the combinations. Now you can do that with the Arduino, but this is his own device to do that. Then he started having more controls on the memory mapping of the CPS2. And with the information that we give him, and with, of course, his own extra experiments, then he designed his own device dedicated to CPS2 dumping directly via the expansion port of the CPS2 to USB. <laughs> so what took us, would take us 200 years to dump all the 8 gigabytes of all the combinations of the encryption took him 17 hours. So he did the complete 8 gigabyte dump for two games. I received a lot of CDs, that was CDs at the time, containing all this data that looked completely random, that couldn't compress at all. I had no idea. We needed someone else to continue again. And this is where Andreas Naiv and Nicolas Armoria um, um, started playing a role into CPS2. And they uh, basically they started making assumptions of the structure of their encryption algorithm. It was a custom but strong, I mean, strong depends on everybody's interpretation, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, strong enough to resist uh, six years <laughs> of emulation. Uh, so it was a Faisal network, and they designed some attacks, and they eventually re reduced the dumps to a 64-bit key. So they got the algorithm, and now they got the key. And with all the decrypted dumps that, were already pr that we had already made, then they made it possible to determine the key. And then not only the decrypted dump doesn't need to be there, because the algorithm is known and the key is known, but it also worked for all the versions the different versions of the, of the, game, the same game. The, the thing is, this game, Ultimate Ecology, is a Japanese version of a game that was common in European version, but very rare in Japanese version. And the G European the version was already dumped and decrypted. And then the key was extracted, and that game was emulated. That was really good, because now all the possible clones and subversions of these games just needed one decrypted dump, determine the key, all the same version of the game decrypted. That was really good. That was a, a huge progress. And the last nail on the coffin was for that game, because this is a CPS1 version, and this CPS2 version is like extremely rare. I, I only heard about one physical version of that game. And the game, the, 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 the owner of this game would of, of course never send it because it's incredibly rare collector, but he did an encrypted dump. And the last attack on CPS2 decryption was uh, by, um, done by Hayes, David, Dave Haywood. And basically with just an encrypted dump, he could do an attack that would determine the key. So now, and so the games was ended up being emulated and preserved only with the decrypted dump. So now even a CPS2 that had its battery dead, as long as the, the program ROMs are still encrypted but valid, then the key could be pre uh, determined and the game could be preserved. That was the, the last step to defeat completely the CPS2 protection. So as a conclusion, I don't know if I still have some time. I don't know. Uh, anyway, I have almost twice as much as bonus as the, the talk itself. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So the mistakes of Capcom was that first to provide an, encrypt an encrypted version of the same game. The game, the original encrypted game still has its debugger enabled, present, while the original CPS2 game didn't have any debugger. All the CPS2 games had an unencrypted range of memory, so you could easily patch a shellcode without any brute forcing. Then they, uh, they didn't prevent the PC-relative addressing mode of 68K to be working. So basically, you could get the code decrypted, and then the key lock, the key leak in the actual code of the decrypted game. That was, yeah, it was a leak in the original unencrypted version. Another mistake. From our side, it was a lot of clumsy hacks sometimes, the joystick dumping and everything. It was a joint effort by people with various profiles. But probably more importantly, it was not just us who were able to, to defeat the CPS2. It was also thanks to a lot of contribution, financially, sometimes just morally and everything, because that was an, an, yeah, an adventure that spanned over many years. But overall, it was a great success. That's how I see it. We clearly got it good. That was clearly an awesome victory. This killer instinct for the youngest among you. Now, a bit about on preservation itself. This is the bubble memory system. It was using a new kind of memory at the time, which ended up being very fragile. And these games are really now really get difficult to get in working state. And they need financial effort and contribution to get to be preserved. And when you boot this game, it needs to warm up to a certain temperature. It apparently takes six minutes in winter. <laughs> and for me, this countdown means all these games are going to die if no one contributes. So the hackers hack and the other people donate or contribute so that these games are preserved. Because some of them are really good and they, they will be lost. A very nice one. This game, nice name for Last Survivor. It was a game that also had a suicide battery and everything, encryption and whatever. And it was only uh, dumped, someone still had a working version of it a few years ago, and it was dumped after like 25 years. So, so incredible effort to preserve a game. And this game is actually interesting because it's one of the first multi split-screen FPS, way before Wolfenstein and everything. So interesting, historically, this game was think, thought to be lost, and it, was, it ended up being preserved, uh, yeah, not so long ago. So. For these games, for this crazy hardware, hacking is the only way to preserve them, and that should be done before it's too late, before all the copies of this game are lost, because in the case of CPS2, we could decrypt the game only with the, if the battery was, even if the battery is already dead, but some of this hardware like, are lost forever, and uh, I think the original, the first racing game that you, we saw earlier is not preserved, as far as I know. Some links on the topic. And do uh, you have any question? It's Lloyd. Hello? Ah. So, thank you very much. This was uh, very interesting. And uh, with the Q&A, I think we'll start with the internet. So, uh, where are those guys sitting? It's just a screensaver. Um, do you have uh, any questions for us? Where is he? Okay. Um, at the moment, there are no questions from the internet. Okay, thank you. So, um, if you would line up behind the microphones. So, if you have questions, of course. Or I still have the bonus. <laughs> oh, that's not the bonus. Question? <laughs> uh, it's five gigabyte. <laughs> On Mac 2? Uh, one question is, uh, so where are, can you contribute? Is, uh, the links you uh, supplied there, can, can I get uh, source code, or, or, uh, the, the, the dumps or something? Uh, because I don't have access to the, to the hardware, to the actual hardware. But yeah. uh, I'd like to contribute. Yeah, well, now the uh, MAME is quite open, and it's like an open project, so okay. you can still try and see what you can contribute. You mean 
technically right. There are plenty of bugs to fix. Okay. <laughs> There are some videos where there was a, actually a bug and I manually uh, uh, fixed the frames, each of the frames, so that the, look, the bug doesn't appear. And don't do that on a 60 frame per second game. It's my advice. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, just for the bugs, it's already a good way to start and uh, with our yeah, mailing list and everything. Now it's more, more or less open. Thank you. Okay, we have another one on mic three. Well, thanks for an awesome talk. Uh, I would know, do you know how, how much nights you spend on this stuff? <laughs> Too long. <laughs> yeah, I probably don't want to know myself. <laughs> but it was rejected a lot and I kept improving it every time it was rejected, so that's why. And I blame Michel Style for making, the, uh, how do you say, inspiring me to make it better. You can stand up, Michel. <laughs> He's asleep. <laughs> Okay, um, some more internet questions. Yeah, somebody wants to know um, if you could um, like tell us something more about the uh, warming up thing that you showed. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. In uh, really, it's just because it was a special uh, kind of memory itself, and uh, it needed to warm. No, I, I don't know. Or to be honest, I just knew it. It had to be warmer, but I don't know the magnetic or physical reasons for that. Sorry. Yeah, bubble memory. Yeah. <laughs> Though the answer, if you didn't hear, is it's complicated. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> okay, uh, on um, another internet question. Yeah, another internet question is um, somebody wants to know which platforms are uh, unbroken as of now. Um, actually, I can. Um, Sure, let's see if we go to the... Oh, yeah, that's a bonus. Did my introduction for my bonus stage. Um, the Ryan... <laughs> uh, this is Ryan 2, and it was only emulated correctly a few months ago. And it's using one of the chips that I showed earlier. The pro uh, and this chip is... It's not a CPU, so it doesn't have a... a, a um, how do you say? A ROM to decap and read bits per bits. And it's still undefeated at the moment. So the Seibu games, so Legionnaire, Zero Inks, uh, are still not undefeated, are still not uh, de um, yeah, de um, preserved. The protection is still not defeated. And that game using the uh, earlier version of that protection, this was the first game using that protection, was only emulated uh, five months ago. Okay, um, on mic two. Um, is there any hope of um, the companies releasing the software on, on themselves like Microsoft did with Windows 1? It's extremely rare. Um, typically, uh, first, yeah, uh, wrong idea about those games is that usually you cannot download the, the ROMs. It's not because they're old that you can download them. The IP is still uh, uh, not free. And usually when you do a, a port on uh, iOS or whatever, you still have to pay a fee to the original uh, company or the IP owner. And typically they don't do that. They only uh, uh, very few companies, like two or three, did that actually. That's just because they did, yeah, maybe they were, they, they, were, they agreed that yeah, they didn't have probably a bigger, a big enough marketing department. Commercial department, sorry for the confusion. So, um, the next question is again from the internet. Yeah, somebody on Twitter asks if there, um, if any of the Konami Panasonic M2 hardware, um, if there are any plans for, they ask for games like Battle Thrust and Evil Knight. Uh, I don't know about anything, but. Uh, I don't know. I don't know about the M2 hardware. I mean, it's probably not. As far as I know, it's not emulated, and I don't not aware of someone working on it. But yeah, I don't know. It's also need a motivation <laughs> to get them working. So I I, I don't know really. It's complicated. Um, okay, uh, you have a question again on mic three. Um, I want to know if like Capcom uh, contacted you like uh, with some love letter from lawyers or. Telling you good job guy or something like that. Uh, so if they contacted us with lawyers and then you said, or are they telling you good job for breaking the encryption? <laughs> Neither, but um, usually, uh, yeah, we were careful because when we started breaking CPS2, there were still games developed on it, so we were really cautious about not releasing two recent games, and that was uh, people hated us for that. Like, give us all the games for free now, with insults usually. And um, no, they didn't really care because now they can reuse, they can get uh, the IP back into control and get their money again from that, from the recent ports. 
But yeah, no, thank you or whatever. Of course not. That's that's one now, I think. But we had a kind of. Um, there was one company that was uh, interested in having the exclusivity of CPS2 emulation, and we said no because we thought as soon as we release even a protected emulator for CPS2, people would extract the data from it. So we said no, and uh, it was released for free. I mean, like in MAME and everything. But we had a, such an offer. Okay. Um, do we have internet questions? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, we have. <clears throat> I have uh, one more question. Um, somebody asks if you um, attack the CPS2 Feistel network uh, cipher thing directly. Uh, I, I don't know uh, the, really the details of the attack, but in the links I gave, uh, Andreas Naive uh, published uh, his blogs in Spanish about how he broke a part of it. But yeah, I, I don't understand much about crypto, so no, I don't know. Okay, thank you. Yep. Yeah, but the, the slides are available anyway, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, okay, if we... Oh, okay, um, Mike too? Yeah, uh, thanks for the talk. Uh, I got a question. What's the current state of arcade gaming? What's about... Are there new releases? Because last year I went to China, I went into arcade gaming hall, and there were all these games I never saw, and... Was well, amazed by it. Is there a Chinese industry for arcade gaming or? I, I don't know about Chinese, but at least from a hardware perspective, now all the games are PCs, mm. and there are new games, but they are a bit uh, into the uh, multiplayer uh, side. So, like you have a lot of uh, cabinets connected together, and even connected online in Japan. So, but standard. So it evolved a bit, but. I'm stuck in time and I only care about 16-bit uh, stuff, so okay. I don't know. But now the hardware is like PCs uh, mm. with a security dongle. <laughs> okay, thanks. Okay, uh, do we have... Oh, on the microphone. Hi, uh, thanks very much for the talk. I really enjoyed it. Um, one question. We, I've seen that lately, over the last two years, a lot of sites that were concerned about the preservation and the cataloging of all the old uh, ROMs have been taken down. And, for example, um, Underground Gamer went offline. Um, well, uh, and since oh, sorry, but since only three uh, or four uh, IP holders uh, released their games uh, legally, all yeah. of them are all the others are illegal. Yeah, so, 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 so my question would be: um, I'm, I'm very much for what you're doing, but where can we preserve software like that? And I, I, I think the archive.org is trying to do that at the moment, um, because it's good that you preserve the software. But since there is no legal way to save it somewhere, I think we're still in peril of losing that software. Well, I think it's a fake question because when you see all the series uh, in the, uh, the Blu-rays being uh, torrent on torrent and those games were like a few megabytes, I don't see the problem really. <laughs> Just okay. put them in the torrent with uh, okay. Games of Thrones and then yeah, everything will be preserved. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks. The, the whole, I think, the complete main ROM sets 6,000 games is like 30 gigabyte. How big is a Blu-ray? Yeah, with the, I think with, with the, all the hard disk, uh, hard disk rooms and uh, the laser disk, it's, it's uh, something of 300 gigabytes at the moment. How, 300 gigabytes with all the laser disk rips. Oh, it's so big. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but my question would be, are you aware of any efforts currently to catalog the software um, that, that, or the games? No. Uh, there are probably, but... I know I'm not aware because I'm not really interested. I'm interested in de defeating the protections and getting the games preserved. Okay, thanks. Okay, um, have we internet questions left? Have we have or? a physical. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if it's a question from a speaker, but somebody asked if you just can't dump a live RAM and then um, rewrite it after replacing the battery. So you, you just dump the game and everything, so, and then you replace the battery and put it back in? Sorry, I, I didn't understand. Um, somebody asks if you can't uh, dump the game while it's running, then replace the battery so stuff get lost, and then you put it back in. Well, I assume it's technically physical possible, but you see what we how we dumped something. <laughs> I don't think we can uh, decrypt something on the fly uh, with our knowledge. I mean, maybe it's physically possible. We we are not able to do this. Yes, on then? mic four. Just an annotation to the uh, question before. Uh, there is the Software Preservation Society, which um, catalogs old home uh, PC games and 
Atari games, C64 games, and they developed special hardware to dump uh, floppy drives with uh, copy protection. So um, there are always private archives of, of the, such uh, ROMs and floppies. Oh, it was an answer to. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, on mic four, uh, three. Uh, yeah, also not really a question, but more an answer to the thing about preservation. Uh, the archive, archive.org is indeed uh, working on that. Uh, I, I know a few people who work on that as well. Uh, they are working on it, but they do sometimes run into legal issues, of course, with IP ownership and such. But if they have to remove something, then they do keep a private copy of uh, the game in question so that it does actually get archived until it can be released out of copyright. Okay. So there are efforts on the way. And basically, if you're interested in working on uh, the preservation itself, basically just making sure it, there is a copy that remains available, then the archive is probably a good place to contact. Okay, thanks for the info. So, um, since we don't have questions left over here, um, I will uh, ask you soon. Uh, internet questions? Okay. No, not at the moment. Then, Mike, two. Okay. Uh, has there been any efforts uh, of um, preserving the actual hardware? So, has, has all the information about the hardware itself gone with the companies? Uh, I'm just asking this because, uh, well, I'm a pin pinball enthusiast and the, all the actual prints for the old tables are pretty much gone, uh, although the software is saved. And yes. now saved the software, but does the, will all, all the hardware just die and disappear? Or yeah, yeah, someone also asked me if the cabinet art and everything was preserved, but I'm, I'm not following that, so I don't know. Okay, are there any questions left? Okay. Thanks for your attention. Um, and thanks for the talk. <laughs>